Hello, everyone. Welcome to this policy seminar co-organized by IFPRI and the Embassy of the Federal Republic of Germany in Washington on sustainable land use, the role of soil for sustainable food systems, a food and agriculture transatlantic dialogue. We will have the opportunity today to hear and discuss the key outcomes of the 14th Global Forum for Food and Agriculture, the GFFA, that took place last month, January 24 to 28. The GFFA is an important annual event organized by Germany's Federal Ministry for Food and Agriculture. In a few moments, we will hear more about the GFFA and its uh, what it is about and what it has achieved. And we will discuss the policies and the partnerships essential to move forward the key topic it addressed, sustainable land use and sustainable soil management. Thank you for joining this event. We would like to hear from as many of you as we can. So to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the speaker's remarks, please submit your brief questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. We have a rich and informative program lined up for you. So without further ado, I'd like to call upon Johan Swinnen, the Director General of IFPRI and the Global Director of Systems Transformation of the CGIR for his introductory remarks. Over to you, Jo. Thank you so much, Rajul. It's great to uh, see you chairing this panel uh, today, to have you back with us. Um, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. I would like to welcome everybody uh, to this policy seminar on sustainable land use and, and healthy soils, which, as uh, Rajul already explained, is co-organized uh, by IFPRI and the, and the embassies of the Federal Republic of Germany. The event today is, our, is, fall, is now an, an annual event, which we host uh, each time together with the embassy uh, following the GFFA, in, which has been hosted in uh, January again in uh, Berlin. So let me start by thanking our co-organizers and the participation uh, here today of them. Um, I'm very glad to see uh, Ms. Cornelia Burns here with us. She's from the German Federal Ministry for Food and Agriculture, and she will present the key results of, of the GFFA. Uh, I also want to thank very much Astrid, Astrid Jacobs, who uh, we have collaborated with in the preparation of this event and also in our uh, preparation for the, for the Berlin event. The uh, 14th Global Forum for Food and Agriculture was a, a very successful event again, as it was uh, the previous years. Uh, the topic was extremely timely, I think. We know that land and healthy soils are central to the transformation of our global food systems, and this transformation is really essential to deal with food security, sustainability, and a number of other challenges going forward. Uh, so it was uh, the focus of the, of the conference, of the event, was both timely and I think crucial. We know now that there are no long-run trade-offs between sustainable land use and global food security. If we want to increase our uh, food supply in the long term, this requires that challenges addressed to climate change and biodiversity, for example, are addressed as well. Sustainability and productivity of existing production systems must be increased and at the same time degraded lands must be restored. There are actually quite a lot of things that we know how to do better. And this uh, knowledge comes from experience, it comes from research, both in practice and in, in the policy side or in the policy uh, making area. For example, we know that farmers are the stewards of much of the soils on the earth. 
So they must have an incentive investing in healthier soil. And for this, we need policies that support the rural economy and that offer incentives for improved soil management practices. As soil management is a long-term investment, uh, therefore the policies and the regulations should be there to ensure secure tenure and land rights to give farmers the incentives for better soil management, but also to give communities incentives for proper land use management in a broader and common lands. We have to rethink our policy systems for that. And I'm really pleased to see uh, Martin van Nieuwkoop here on the program today. We have worked very uh, closely with Martin and the World Bank on our uh, rethinking of policy systems, particularly the work on repurposing agricultural subsidies, which should help to target investments towards uh, better land management, better soil management, etc. And so in, in this way, we have shown, and we have a report out just now, uh, a few weeks ago, which shows that it is possible to achieve both environmental and economic benefits by repurposing subsidies. In many regions of the world, there are large differences between the potential and the actual uh, agriculture productivity. Promoting sustainable land use intensification, um, better technologies, better practices can improve both crop yields without expanding cropland and while also promoting sustainable land use. But there are also many things that we do not know or do not know well enough. And for this, I think we should continue to invest in further research and innovation to go forward. My organizations, IFPRI and the 1CGIR more broadly, have a mission to deliver science and innovation that advances the transformation of food, land, and water systems. We have a new strategy, the 2030 Research Strategy. It's an ambitious strategy to provide knowledge and innovation in this field. So we are ready to deliver in-depth research to to deliver, sorry, we are ready to deliver in-depth research to achieve ecological, economic, and social sustainability. In conclusion, let me again congratulate the organizers of the GFFA. I think it was an important and timely platform for international discussions with various stakeholders. It provided a great opportunity for all the participants to share findings on best practices and lessons, to raise awareness on the urgency and the importance of sustainable soil use, and to provide evidence-based advice to the policy decision-making process. So congratulations again. Uh, I really look forward to the summary that Mrs. Burns will give on the, the findings, the key conclusions of the GFFA, and also to the panel discussion. We have excellent speakers on the panel, so I really look forward to hearing from you. With that, back to you, Rachel. Excellent. Thank you so much for uh, your remarks here and setting the context. And like you, I'm absolutely delighted we are continuing this annual tradition of uh, co-hosting an event with the Embassy in Washington to further follow up on the findings of the GFFA. With that, let me now call upon Ms. Cornelia Burns, the Deputy Director General of the German Federal Ministry for Food and Agriculture. Cornelia, we're eager to hear more from you. What is the GFFA and what are the results it has achieved? Over to you, Cornelia. Thank you very much for your nice introduction and thank you very much for inviting me to this event. Yeah, the, the Global Forum for Food and Agriculture, the GFFA, was hosted by the German Federal Ministry of Food and Agriculture for the 14th time in 2022. It has evolved into the, the international conference on key issues regarding the future of the global agri-food sector. Its climax is the Agricultural Ministers' Conference, the world's largest informal conference of agricultural ministers. This year, 
68 ministers and 11 international organizations participated. Live streams were accessed more than 10,000 times from 125 countries. At the GFFA, we are driven by the fact that around 800 million people around the globe are still afflicted by hunger and over 2 billion people lack access to adequate food. In order to solve this problem, we need global responses for sustainable food systems of the future. The question of global food security is therefore at the pivot of every GFFA. Every year, we dedicate the GFFA to a priority topic that must make a key contribution to global food security. In recent years, these topics have included international agricultural trade or climate issues and their contribution to global food security. This year, we choose the topic of sustainable land use. Food security starts with the soil. More than 90% of global food production depends on soil. Soils provide habitats for soil organisms, purify and store water, filter pollutants, and they are the Earth's most important terrestrial carbon sink. However, soil quality is increasingly deteriorating and fertile land is becoming more scarce. The causes for this include soil sealing, but also the loss of land due to the sea level rise and desertification. Meeting the United Nations goal of achieving a world without hunger by 2030 will only be possible if we succeed in protecting our soils. Only if we utilize land resources sustainably and preserve existing agricultural land we will be able to feed the growing, growing global population, keep global warming below two degrees and reduce the loss of biodiversity. The ministers and the 2022 GFFA therefore discussed the following questions. How can we improve soil protection? How can we restore degraded soils? How can we make the use of finite land resources more sustainable? And how can farmers worldwide get fair access to land? Which results have been achieved? The most important conclusions of the final communique can be summarized as follows. Soil as a scarce resource and the foundation for terrestrial ecosystems and agricultural production must be protected. Climate change mitigation and adaptation must be advanced, soil being a valuable instrument for both. Soils can store significant amounts of carbon and soil that is rich in organic matter can store more water for dry periods. It is particularly crucial to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions of drained moorland. Soil biodiversity is a prerequisite for healthy soils. In turn, healthy soils are also rich in biodiversity. The ministers therefore want to promote agricultural practices that serve this purpose. 
Examples include an adapted nutrient supply and the responsible use of plant protection products. Another important contribution to protecting and improving soil biodiversity is organic farming. As global land resources are limited, they need to be managed sustainably. This entails minimizing land take and restoring degraded land for agricultural use. The progression of decertification is alarming. In this regard, site-adapted measures such as the restoration of productive and biologically diverse landscapes are necessary. One example is Africa's Great Green Wall. The ministers also underline the great significance of ground cover through forest and grassland as protection of soils against erosion. Their protection should also be supported by responsible agricultural supply chains. Long-term and secure tenure rights promote a careful handling of soils. They are a central contribution to food security. Farmers must be able to gain access to land, which is necessary for farming. All people should have non-discriminatory access to agricultural land. The ministers underlined the importance of the CFS voluntary guidelines on the responsible governance of tenure of land, fisheries and forests in the context of national food security. Investment, breeding, research, innovation and dig digital solutions can significantly contribute to making the use of soils more sustainable. Above all, we need better data on the status of soils as a basis for political decisions. Resilient and sustainable food systems must be supported on a global scale. We do not have much time left if we want to meet the United Nations goal of achieving a world without hunger by 2030. This is a difficult pathway also because we must achieve the other sustainable development goals at the same time. The international community now needs to put the constructive suggestions of the final communique into practice. Each country for itself, but also united. FAO, the Global Soil Partnership, the Secretariat of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, and the Committee on World Food Security have taken the mission to their day-to-day -day business. The UNCCD is planning to include the communique in their conference of the parties in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire in May. Last year's UN Food Systems Summit has given us no less than the impetus to transform the entire food system, a goal we were supposed to achieve by 2020. Let's finally make a start. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Cornelia, for that comprehensive and compelling overview of the GFFA and uh, uh, what it focused on and what it sought to achieve. Um, we are, of course, all eager to know what will be next year's topic, because this is such an important spotlight that the GFFA puts on a topic, as you say, of, of a priority for global food security. Uh, and it's important that you do that. So we'll come back later in the Q&A on that. 
colleagues, before I move us to the panel discussion, and we have an incredible panel discussion ahead of us, I'd like to remind all of you joining in that you can submit your brief questions in various platforms on ifpre.org, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, or on Twitter through the hashtag AskIfpre. So do not be shy. Go ahead and do that. So we do have a fabulous panel discussion lined up and we will begin with scientific perspectives and then move on to national uh, policy perspectives and international organization perspectives on how we can move this agenda forward. I would like to call on our first panelist and that is Professor Ratan Lau, who is well known to all of us. He is the Distinguished University Professor of Soil Science at Ohio State University. He's also the 2020 World Food Prize Laureate. And if I was to continue and give all the various stories of his bios, our event would be over. So I'll, forgive me, Dr. Lal, but uh, I will uh, give you the chance to tell us more about why are soils so important? And what are some key scientifically proven best practices for sustainable soil management? What is it that we know? Over to you, Professor Lal. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm really grateful to IFPRI and the German uh, embassy for uh, organizing this program. Soil is the essence of all terrestrial life. There's no life without soil and no soil without life they have evolved together. So soil is the basic component of uh, our life. If I may go a step further and indicate that uh, at the soil root hair interface at a nanoscale, soil is the only proven entity where death is resurrected into life. So it is that essential. Soil is also essential to climate change. Before agriculture began, the carbon stock in the atmosphere was 360 gigaton. Since agriculture to pre-industrial revolution, the carbon stock increased to 560 gigaton, 200 came from land use conversion. And at present, it is 880 gigaton. And quite a lot of it's coming from soil. And we can put back into the soil. That's another reason why soil is important. The question of food security was mentioned. The way food is produced and consumed affects the health of soil, plants, animal, people, ecosystem, and the planet. Above all, the sustainable development goals for next eight or nine years, I think are in jeopardy if the soils are not properly addressed. The question of undernutrition was brought up this morning. I would like to state an old saying when diet is correct, medicine is of no need. And when diet is wrong, medicine is of no use. And correct diet come from healthy soil. We must never forget it. The question is asked, what are the better agricultural practices? I will first like to indicate better agricultural processes. For example, we are degrading soil because we are depleting nutrients. We are removing the soil from nature we must return some soil back to nature. Rather than bringing another 500 million hectare of natural system to agriculture, if we do agriculture properly by 2050, we should return some land back to nature. But 2100, I think as much as a billion hectare or more could go back. So what are the practices? Conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture, agroecology, agroforestry, 
integration of crops with trees and livestock, practices which create a positive soil ecosystem carbon budget. A slogan of CNPK, C for carbon, rather than NPK. If we focus on C, the need for NPK and pesticide will decrease. Balance use of plant nutrients. Rather than flood irrigation, drip fertigation, digital agriculture, artificial intelligence, so that you can remove drudgery. I know the time is running short. I would simply mention that the farmer should be properly motivated. And how much? I would suggest $125 to $130 per ton of carbon. That translated into per credit, it will be about $30 to $35 per carbon credit. That's the price that the farmer should be compensated. Why? Because on degraded soil, if they persist, the global peace and stability and tranquility is in danger. In fact, the only mass of weapon of mass destruction that we know by now is hunger and malnutrition, killing 16 to 17 people a minute. Therefore, solution lies in a mantra, healthy soil equal to healthy diet, equal to healthy people, equal to healthy ecosystem, equal to healthy planetary presses, equal to world peace and stability. It is that important. Thank you. Professor Lal, that was a masterclass in five minutes or less, why soils are so important and what we can do. Truly, I uh, applaud you for that. I'm sure we will come back in the Q&A for further elaboration. But really, as you say, healthy soils is the essence of life. Thank you for putting that very compelling narrative right clearly in front of all of us. I would like to move then to our next speaker, and that is Javu Ku, Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI. Javu, uh, Professor Lal also talked about the importance of digital agriculture, uh, and the communique itself also emphasizes high quality soil data and advocates for new technologies and digital solutions. Can you tell us a little bit about how digital technologies can contribute to improving data and to otherwise achieving healthy soils? Over to you. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for this opportunity. It's a great honor to follow Professor Lars' presentation. Uh, despite the importance of soils, however, it has been always challenging to find quality soil data, no matter where you farm or conduct research. I'd like to briefly describe a couple of fundamental challenges in why it's so difficult to generate quality soil data and how digital technologies are addressing them. The first reason is somewhat obvious. Unlike weather and climate, we cannot see what soils look like on the ground. There are only limited number of soil pits uh, where soil scientists uh, dug up the ground, collected soil samples at different depths, and analyze them in the lab to generate site-specific soil reports. Uh, this soil profile data is crucial to understand what kind of soil nutrient uh, there are and help farmers to decide how to manage them. Uh, because of the logistical challenges of collecting and analyzing soil samples at scale, recent advances in digital soil mapping approaches are playing an important role. Uh, soil scientists correlate soil properties with other information we can collect and or observe, such as farm management practices and land cover data, and predict soil properties in other locations. Uh, for example, taking advantage of AI and machine learning techniques, the latest soil maps from ISDA initiative provide high-resolution soil property data across Africa at 30-meter resolution. 
The second reason is the dynamic nature of soil properties. Some soil properties are like texture, are rather stable over a long period of time. You can use data measured in the past. Uh, on the other hand, soil nitrogen and soil moisture content, for example, are highly sensitive to how farmers manage the field under what weather and climate conditions. There is already a global shortage of soil samples and tracking the dynamics of soil property over time is even more challenging. Here, data from remote sensing technologies, either from satellite, drones, or in-field sensor devices have particularly useful to fill the gaps. Uh, there are statistical relationships between the reflectance of light on soils and their properties. These relationships can be applied to remote sensing data and used to monitor changes in soil moisture and soil carbon stock, for example, across large area near real time. Which data are already being used in, in practice to manage soil quality and promote healthy soils. For example, the Ethiopian government effort to develop a high quality soil database called ETOSIS is used to prescribe the most optimum blend of fertilizers locally. Digital technologies also connect soil scientists with farmers by streamlining soil sampling and lab analysis. Indian government soil health card system, for example, collects soil samples from all across the India, analyze them at low cost, about $3 per sample. And once analyzed, farmers receive a soil health card uh, digitally, and they learn how best to manage their own soils. An impact evaluation study found that soil health card scheme reduced fertilizer use and reduced management costs and increased the use of gypsum and other micronutrients that otherwise might not have been managed. And these are just small subset of examples, and there are many other innovative digital applications that contribute to making quality soil data more available, accessible, and relevant. In a way, it's an exciting time to be a soil scientist. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jiao. It is an exciting time to be a soil scientist. It is an exciting time to be in science. Thank you for sharing with us some of these examples and for sharing the real on-the-ground examples with story from Ethiopia and India. Hopefully, we can delve further into that in the Q&A session. So we switch gears now to hear from national activities and national perspectives. And our next speaker comes to us from Malawi. He is Teddy Kamoto, the Deputy Director of Forestry in the Department of Forestry with the Ministry of Natural Resources, Energy and Mining in the Republic of Malawi. Teddy, long-term affordable and secure access to agricultural land is crucial to restoring ecosystems. Uh, Cornelia mentioned that when she was introducing the GFFA. What are some of the approaches that are being used or are being considered in Malawi to enable fair access to land and to achieve land degradation neutrality? We look forward to hearing Malawi's examples. Over to you. Thank you, no, thank you so very much. Um, allow me to first um, um, congratulate uh, the organizers of this, this function and, and at the same time, uh, our appreciation for bringing Malawi on the table, allowing Malawi to be part of this conversation. Um, maybe I should start by saying that um, when you look at uh, Malawi, Malawi basically the economy is agro-based. And what it means is we depend more on agriculture and therefore land is very critical. And, and when you look at the land holding sizes uh, for the local Malawian farmer in Malawi, it's, it's less than half an acre. Um, and that brings a challenge in terms of making sure that we have enough food. 
Uh, of course, government has put a number of efforts. Uh, you may wish to, to know that uh, we are one of those countries that uh, provide uh, subsidies to uh, local farmers uh, in form of fertilizers and seed. Uh, this is because the soils have been degraded so much so that uh, productivity is very low. Now, when, when, when we look at these small land holding sizes, um, obviously, uh, you, you need to make sure that each piece of land that a farmer has uh, is put to good use. And, 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 and now, when you look at the, the governing laws that are there on customer land, you will note that uh, in the past, um, obviously, uh, all the land at customer level uh, was being managed by the chiefs, and therefore the chiefs could have the right to relocate land to anybody and, uh, that he feels like. But now uh, I think government has moved on and the, uh, what it has done is, is one, work on the legislation, making sure that he, uh, he, we put in place the governance structure at local level that manages the land other than the, the, the chief, the traditional leader himself. So that brings in the issue of fairness and that issue brings in the issue of uh, assurance that when you have a piece of land that you are working on, uh, will not be clubbed from you and, and therefore you can invest on that piece of land. But, but on top of that, what, what, what we, we, we're doing is to make sure that we, we, we are doing what we call uh, participatory uh, land use uh, mapping uh, so, so that um, we are able to, to, to categorize uh, the degradation uh, in terms of uh, the kind of interventions that can be done. So this participatory land use planning um, in all the districts, we, we've done that and therefore the districts have put what we call participatory land use maps. And the, the, these maps, uh, they are able to, to, to show the kind of degradation that has taken place. And therefore using what we call the national forest landscape strategy, we are able to use the interventions that are, that are in there. And based on the assessment that we've done in the country, uh, almost eight, eight, 70 to 80% of the country is degraded. And, and, and that is very, very scaring situation. Uh, and the, based on that assessment, we were able to establish that 40% uh, of that 80%, for it to be rehabilitated, uh, we need to, to use what we call improved agriculture technologies because the soils are so much degraded. Things like conservation agriculture, uh, climate smart agriculture, agroforestry, uh, farmer managed regeneration, because we have to do that. Otherwise, productivity will be very low. And when you look at the um, soil, soil erosion and, and soil control, uh, the, the interventions that we have in the strategy uh, based on the assessment shows that 11% of that, 70% of the degraded land would require soil and water conservation type of technologies for us to be able to restore it, like the, the check dams, like the, the contours and, and all that to reduce the flow of, of water and even water harvesting techniques. So th these are some of the things that we are doing. And on top of that, we have platforms like uh, the forest landscape restoration platform uh, where um, practitioners are able to share experiences in terms of what they are able to do 
in order to restore the degraded areas. So this, this has helped uh, because now many farmers are aware and they're able to access information uh, in terms of uh, how to, to, to restore the, the, the degraded areas. So these are some of the things that as a country, we believe that uh, will help us to, re to restore the degraded areas. Because if we, if we don't, uh, obviously it means even the number of farmers that have to depend on uh, sub agriculture subsidies will have to increase. Uh, and the, and the, I don't think government will have enough resources to do that. So the best way is to actually re restore these degraded areas. So maybe if I can stop there for the time being, thank you. Thank you very much, Teddy. Thank you for sharing it as Malawi's efforts, Malawi's investments uh, in, uh, in uh, 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 efforts to uh, restore degraded lands also to understand the extent of degradation and what actions can be taken. I was also I was also happy that you talked about water, the water management. You talked about uh, forestry uh, and reforestation. So you kind of brought the whole family together of how to improve uh, soil management. We'll come back to that in the Q&A, uh, but thank you. I'd like to move to our next speaker then, and she is uh, Katrin Martin. She is agricultural scientific analyst in the Foreign Agricultural Service of the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA. Katrin, how are the existing and planned efforts in the US contributing to sustainable land use, climate smart agriculture, and healthy soils? Could you give us a quick flavor? Sure. Thanks a Thank lot, you. Rajul. And, and thanks to the organizers, Ifri and Astrid and other colleagues at the German Embassy for this opportunity to participate today. Um, you know, these are all topics that are priorities to USDA, so it's going to be a challenge to, to distill all the relevant info into five minutes. But I'll start by saying that this year's GFFA communique essentially um, summarizes USDA's vision, which is to provide economic opportunity and promote um, agricultural production that better nourishes the world while preserving our natural resources through conservation, restored forests, improved watersheds, and healthy working lands. Um, and I'll say early in this administration, USDA conducted broad consultations with diverse stakeholders to inform our climate smart agriculture and forestry strategy. And input from these consultations reaffirmed our fo focus on innovation and partnerships. Uh, USDA's efforts are voluntary and incentive-based and farmer-led. And these efforts include, uh, among others, sustainable forest management and landscape level planning, growing the biodiversity, of course, food loss and waste measurement and reduction efforts, uh, supporting research, data collection, MRV, and investing in the science and quantification of carbon sequestration. On trade and markets, we know we need to improve the business case for farmers to adopt and scale more sustainable practices by working to expand uh, access to markets to meet the demand for sustainably produced foods, both domestically and globally. Um, USDA is providing technical and financial assistance to help producers and landowners make conservation improvements that enhance biodiversity and ecosystem services build resilience and contribute to the nation's broader efforts to tackle the climate crisis. And I'll mention just a few of the department's efforts uh, since January. We've expanded investments in existing conservation programs like the Conservation Reserve Program, 
Uh, we're continuing the pandemic cover crop program, which offers farmers who plan uh, plant cover crops a discount on their insurance premiums. And this program incentive covered over 12 million acres last year. Um, there's a $9 million investment in new cooperative extension and USDA regional climate hubs partnership to bolster climate change research and share climate smart solutions directly with the agricultural community. Um, and just last week, Secretary Vilsack announced a billion dollar investment in partnerships for climate smart commodities, which is an initiative that will support the production of climate smart commodities through, through a series of large scale pilots and demonstration projects. A key component of these partnerships will be in financing the steps necessary to measure and validate the greenhouse gas benefits of those practices. Another key aspect of the partnerships will be equity and inclusion. USD or US agriculture includes a, a wide range of farm systems and sizes, and the program is accessible to all. So you can check out the website where we're accepting project applications now. Um, so in preparing for this discussion, I was talking with some of my USDA colleagues and in chatting with a, a colleague from the Nat uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service, he picked up a copy of the, the 1938 yearbook of agriculture that he had sitting in his office. And he highlighted a few chapters to offer a sense of some of the challenges that had been identified over 80 years ago that we continue to work to address. And many of the proposed solutions like restoration of soil organic matter with cover crops, use of manures and organic amendments, reforestation and revegetation of marginal lands for erosion control, these solutions are not new, but that doesn't make them any less effective or less necessary. And if anything, in light of the climate impacts and the needs of the growing global population, they may be even more necessary now. And by pairing those tried and true conservation practices with cutting edge new tools and technologies, we can really see improvements in soil health, nutrient use efficiency, and sustainable productivity growth that enhance livelihoods. And there are so many potential exciting new game changers on the horizon. So an example is research on new perennial grain crops that can enhance agrobiodiversity, improve soil structure and nutrient and water retention. A recent grant of $10 million was awarded through USDA's Sustainable Agricultural Systems Program to a coalition of researchers and farmers and educators and industry leaders to scale the research, production, and commercialization of Kernza grain, which is the first commercial perennial grain in the United States. Um, these solutions and innovative partnerships are vital to more sustainable land use and global food and nutrition security. And like all global challenges, um, we need global solutions and, and of course, international collab, uh, collaboration cooperation. USDA is committed to working with all partners and we truly value multi-stakeholder dialogues like these where we can advance shared goals through research collaboration and knowledge sharing and policy dialogue. And I'll, I'll stop by mentioning that uh, next week, USDA is holding its 98th Agricultural Outlook Forum. And there are you know, some, some relevant topics. The theme of this year's uh, forum is new paths to sustainability and productivity growth. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much for the question.
Thank you. Thank you so much, Katrine. This was a heroic overview in five minutes or less of, of all the many of, 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 of some of the highlights of what USDA is uh, undertaking or supporting. And in the Q&A, we'll come back to something you mentioned at the end, which is global solutions, international corporations. I hope we'll have a chance to discuss that uh, at that time and come back and delve into some of these other efforts. But thank you for that, Katrine. So let's move to our next panelist, and that is Martin uh, van Nyokov, Global Director for the Agriculture and Food Global Practice at the World Bank. Martin, you have heard the different scientific perspectives, you have heard of the experiences in Malawi and the United States, and I'm sure you've heard also from many different partners. What can the World Bank do to help move forward this agenda for improving soil management, saving of deforestation and land degradation, protecting carbon sinks and so forth? How can it help to move this agenda forward in a decisive way? Over to you, Martin. Well, very good. Thank you very much, uh, Ranjo. It's a great question. So, greetings to all, and I'm very pleased to uh, be part of this panel today. Um, you know, let me start. You know, I mean, Cornelia mentioned in the opening remarks, I mean, that the 2022 Global Forum for Food and Agriculture, I mean, positioned healthy soils as a key starting point for food security, which requires global cooperation and action, which was also just mentioned, and, and the World Bank, uh, let me start by saying this, and the World Bank fully agrees, I mean, with this uh, proposition. And of course, you know, uh, that proposition is also a reminder of what Franklin D. Roosevelt, I mean, the 22nd U.S. president, once famously said, I mean, a nation that destroys its soils, I mean, destroys itself. And of course, we need urgently uh, to reverse soil degradation and, and capture the opportunities that healthy soils offer, as mentioned by Professor uh, Lal, in terms of building resilience and mitigating greenhouse gas emissions to carbon sequestration. Now, the World Bank, if you look at the um, final communique that was issued uh, three weeks ago at the GFFA, we are supporting many elements of that communique, and I can actually put them in three buckets. I mean, incentives, innovations and investments. Um, now, when it comes to incentives, now we are working with key partners, I mean, like the UK government to get the incentives right, I mean, for farmers to invest in healthy soils and make agriculture more sustainable. Also, Joe Sweden was talking about in incentives. And I also like very much, I mean, Professor Lal's suggestion, I mean, that farmers should be compensated for sequestering uh, carbon. Now, in our work with the UK government, we had a series of global policy dialogues. You know, over 30 countries identified and shared experiences that they have taken to redirect their policies to transition to sustainable agricultural practices. And the final results of these dialogues is the policy action agenda, which was launched at the COP26, and this aims to repurpose global public support to agriculture. And this exceeds $700 billion per year and is mostly ineffective. I mean, towards better environmental, health, and social outcomes. Um, I mean, through our Food Systems 2030 initiative, which is supported by Germany, the UK, the Bill and, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Netherlands, we're working right now in 15 countries to identify repurposing options and assess, I mean, the specific trade-offs and synergies of their existing agriculture policies and public spending. Um, and a key part of this is equipping the, the, the countries and the farmers, I mean, with the critical data 
that they need on soil health. Uh, accurately counting, accounting for soil organic carbon uh, changes, you know, accounting for those changes is a very important lever, we think, to unlock climate financing for soils, which is currently lacking. I mean, we recently identified innovative approaches and public guidance in a source book on soil organic carbon measurement, reporting and verification. And we are looking, I mean, to pilot such, approach, uh, such approaches in, uh, in, in our client countries. Now, it, the second bucket in the areas of innovations. So we are working with public and private partners to build foundational global data and analytics and we're supporting the development of digital agricultural ecosystems for smallholder farmers, I mean, to increase their incomes and their livelihoods through transformation of the food systems. An example is the accelerating impacts of CJR Climate Research for Africa project, uh, in which we are working to deliver climate smart African future, developing the first soil carbon monitoring prototype and soil carbon maps of Eastern Africa, as well as, you know, we're working on digital solutions to optimize, I mean, the location-specific fertilizer recommendations. Uh, also through our flagship report that came out last year on digital transformation of the agro-food system. I mean, we are exploring, you know, how digital technologies are improving the food system and, and, and providing, by doing so, a roadmap for countries, I mean, to scale up their own digital agriculture. Now, finally, on investments, um, you know, these are urgently needed I mean, to scale up the solutions that work for farmers and build climate resilience. I mean, the World Bank is the biggest provider of development financing for agriculture and food. We have a portfolio of about $20 billion in financing for agriculture and food-related projects. And we do about 4 to $5 billion new lending for agriculture and food annually um, um, for agriculture and food. And, and we have increased our annual financing for climate action in agriculture and food by seven times, I mean, since the Paris Agreement. I mean, and last year we provided nearly $3 billion in climate-related financing to agriculture and food in the last financial year. And also on the private sector side, we think that's very important. We are working to translate, I mean, voluntary principles, CSR, into mandatory ESG, Environment, Social and Governance Standards, I mean, working with the World Benchmarking Alliance in this respect. Uh, and as part of our investments, we are very much engaged on the, green, on the Great Green Wall, uh, which was mentioned in the GFFA communique, it was also mentioned by Cornelia in her opening remarks, where we have about $5 billion, I mean, to ongoing and newly planned projects in 11 countries in support of that uh, we're also investing in the protection of forests and the restoration of landscapes. I mean, to two, uh, to two impactful programs. I mean, FOLUR, or the Food Systems Land Use and Restoration Impact Program, which is funded by the Global Environmental Facility, and ProGreen, or the Global Partnership for Sustainable and Resilient Landscapes. Uh, so, so we can push the envelope there and do frontier kind of innovations and activities. And these programs recognize uh, which was also mentioned by previous speakers. I mean, that it requires all of, all of us to make this change and that new ways of working together, Rajul, are essential, I mean, to create better food systems. Um, so that's for my side. Thank you. And back to you, Rajul.
Thank you, Martin. That was another masterful uh, summary overview of all the different World Bank efforts. And I really liked three buckets that you put together, the incentives, the innovations and investments, the three eyes. Very powerful way to think about how we can support this uh, agenda moving forward. So colleagues are watching us this event from around the world. I'm sure you will agree with me that we had an incredible panel here, a very uh, deliberate, uh, very insightful, and a very rich um, sort of set of ideas put on the table and uh, from our scientists, from our national policymakers, from the international organizations, and so forth. I would like us to move forward to the Q&A portion. And a reminder again, please feel welcome to submit your questions and comments in the different platforms I've mentioned. I also ask the panelists if they wish to also ask each other any questions, give me a signal. Let's have a dialogue between us also you know, in terms of things that you heard from each other that you want to follow up and probe, give me a signal that will make it interesting. So I will uh, read a question at a time and I will indicate the person to whom that question is directed. And I will ask our panelists, be brief, but be insightful so that we can have as much a conversation as we can with the audience and among ourselves. And I notice we have uh, several questions that have come in. So let me pick up on those questions uh, that are coming in uh, and, uh, uh, and, and go from there, as well as uh, other questions from other platforms. Um, the first question I'd like to direct is to Professor Lal. Uh, Professor Lal, one of the questions, and this has been raised several times, is about soil carbon stocks. Um, what is the latest thinking or what is the scientific evidence about the permanence or non-permanence of soil carbon stocks and what then should we be uh, thinking about in the future? Over to you, Professor Lal. Thank you. That's a very good question and uh, we were discussing this in many meetings. If carbon put in soil and land, is it permanent? Uh, nothing is permanent in this universe. Everything is changing. Uh, the question is how long it can stay. Let's take the case of conservation agriculture. If you adopt conservation agriculture and the soil is kept covered all the time with cover crops and with crop residue mulch, and it's not plowed, that carbon will not go anywhere. But if that soil is disturbed, of course, the carbon will go back in the atmosphere. And uh, so the question is when you reward farmers, just like in the case of CRP and WRP, we are rewarding them if they do not disturb the land, return the crop residue back on the soil and uh, grow a cover crop in the off season. And that is the reward for. They will be rewarded if they practice that. They will not be rewarded if they don't. If they practice it, soil carbon will be permanent. This is the organic carbon. Inorganic carbon, which has not received much attention, it, it must, uh, is very stable. So formation of secondary carbonates, formation of bicarbonates, and they're leaching into the groundwater, and then precipitation there as a caliche, many times you see, and the drier climate, which are about 42% now of the world, they may become 50% uh, by 2050 or so. Secondary carbonates, carbon sequestration is very critical, and they are very stable. Uh, very briefly, I think I shouldn't take too much time, uh, the question of measurement, monitoring, and verification. I think it's very nice. We should uh, promote that. But please remember, CRP was not based on monitoring runoff and erosion from each acre of land. It was based on satellite imagery. If the farmers were not cultivating the land, they were paid. 
So let's not go too far on that MRV, which apply to geologic sequestration. Do not try to push that onto agricultural part. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Lal. I, if, if any of the panelists wish to come in and uh, also further comment, give me a signal. Otherwise, I will move us on. Okay, and I'm pretty sure they'll come back to this later. And as we vote to you, as I see questions coming in. The next question is for Javu. And Javu, this question has come in from, uh, uh, from around the world. And, uh, and perhaps also Martin may wish to also reflect on this question. The first Javu, how cost effective will digital technology be for small, far small scale farmers in the world and Africa in particular, given the few commercial farmers in Africa? So Javu, would you like to comment on that? And if Martin also wishes to do that, first Javu. Yes, and that's a really good question. And that's where we really need to be careful uh, when we introduce new digital technologies and innovation. Um, the adoption is totally different uh, side of the story. Uh, so the technology should be accessible and easily understandable, and there should be a continuous dialogue and communication channel between scientists and researchers who develop and provide content, who use the farmers, who uh, use the technology and use the uh, digital tool in the field uh, and giving feedback back to the researchers. So yeah, it's really difficult question. Uh, in a way, there are so many different types of farmers and different types of farming system for really low input system, uh, very remote village. I think uh, probably the easiest, uh, the quickest way to get benefit from digital tool is weather uh, and some kind of uh, decision support tool in a simplistic way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it will be ch quite challenging to benefit all the remote villages uh, using this uh, uh, digital technologies, uh, specific, specifically for the soil data quality issue, I briefly mentioned in my uh, speech earlier. Uh, that there are uh, like only limited fundamental data set available, uh, and there are lots of AI and machine learning technique to interpret those data. But if those data sets are not really representative of where farmers are farming, the recommendations the researchers are giving might not be the right. Uh, you know, advice that the most effective way to manage the soil. So uh, I think we have to be really cognizant of where we have more uncertainties and we might even have biases the data and that's where more research is really needed uh, how we can best benefit smallholder farmers. Thank you, Javo. Very thoughtful reply. Martin, would you like to come in also from World Bank experience? Yes, yes, definitely. Thanks for the question and thanks for Julia. I mentioned in, in kind of my response to your first question, I mean, um, that um, um, we came out with a reflection board on digital technologies and digital agriculture. So, and I think they're very powerful because, you know, they're affecting production systems, you know, in multiple dimension in kind of simultaneous fashion. So, so, so let me uh, put a few considerations on the table here. One is that we think I mean, uh, and the question was related to small far smallholder farmers. I mean, we think that digital technologies are directly actually affecting economies of scale and actually are providing opportunities for scale. I mean, to smallholder farmers. I mean, think about, I mean, the sharing economy. I mean, hello tractor. I mean, that actually farmers get access to machinery that they don't know, that they don't own, but actually by taking advantage of of services. And I think that is very relevant. Also, for Dr. Uh, Lal said, you know, on the adoption of no-tillage, you know, activities that requires, I mean, sometimes specialized uh, investment, uh, specialized machinery. Um, digital uh, technologies, I mean, are key for, 
precision farming, uh, increasing input use efficiency, and that reduces the cost of farmers and improves directly their bottom line. Uh, it's very key for access to markets. I mean, think about e-markets, um, uh, cutting out middlemen, I mean, directly actually marketing their produce, I mean, to consumers, it's a third dimension. And fourth, of course, I mean, the, the, the efficiency of services. I mean, when it comes to the ad adoption of climate smart agriculture, conservation, agriculture, agroecology, whatever label you want to put on it. Um, and Professor Law provided quite a few examples of the technologies that are that, that you know that are available. I mean, there is no silver bullet. I mean, probably farmers need, need to adopt, you know, a kind of a package of solutions. There are also no blueprints. I mean, the, the, the solutions need to be tailored, I mean, to the existing local agroecological conditions. This means that we that there's a kind of a knowledge gap that needs to be um, um, resolved. And, and we know that extension services in many countries are not very effective. So digital could actually play a very important role to put those type of technologies in the hands of farmers. Uh, so, so we think there's a big upside uh, on the uh, digital revolution in agriculture. There's also a big risk. I mean, we need to avoid actually that small farmers end up on the wrong side of the digital divide because actually that would put them further uh, um, back. And for that reason, I mean, in the bank, I mean, this is a high priority for us. I mean, basically to capture this upside and avoid this downside. Back to you, Rajul. Thank you. I see Jawu nodding his head also on this one. The the big upsides and the big uh, risks. Um, let me move over to the next question, if anybody else, yeah. Katrina, I'd like to come over to you um, and pick up on something you had mentioned at the end of your remarks. And this is about the global solutions, the importance of global coordination, global working together, international coordination. Can you say a few words about what some of the USDA's multilateral efforts are? You gave us a great picture of domestic, but uh, how is USDA looking to work with partners? And then I will come to Cornelia Burns after that on a similar question. Over to you, Katrin, first. Sure, thanks a lot. And before I address that, I want to say thanks a lot to Martian for uh, for mentioning the very same thing we're, we're saying often is that there's no silver bullet. and we're in the unfortunate position of a lot of times just kind of uh, getting into these entrenched debates about how we label different production systems and approaches and uh, certainly agree with you wholeheartedly there. Um, so yeah, on our on USDA's multilateral efforts, I'll, I'll note, um, you know, we're very engaged in all of the international organizations. UNEA 5.2 is starting next week and the US is going to be um, Promoting, you know, nature-based solutions and a transition to more circular approaches, uh, you know, as opposed to extractive. Um, we're engaged in the Global Soils Partnership. All the initiatives that were mentioned in the communique, the Global Research on uh, Research Alliance on Agricultural Greenhouse Gases, and the UNCCD. Um, and then in the lead up to COP26, um, the U.S. launched a, a number of climate initiatives to advance the overarching objectives of building resilience and leveraging innovation to enhance agricultural and food system sustainability. And um, uh, I'll mention just a few of those there, the Aim for Climate, uh, the Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate was a joint initiative of uh, the U.S. and the UAE. 
Um, its in, intent is to catalyze greater investment in climate smart agriculture and food systems innovation over the next five years. Um, there's uh, about 40 country partners and over 100 non-governmental partners, including CGIAR. Um, and actually the first ministerial meeting is taking place next Monday in, in Dubai. Um, and then we were, you know, the US was very active in the UN Food Systems Summit. And as an outcome of that, we initiated a coalition um, on sustainable productivity growth for research conservation and um, food security. Um, and this is sort of an effort to accelerate the transition to more sustainable food systems through agricultural productivity growth that hits all the, the, the outcomes across all the three dimensions. Um, and, and IFPRI is a, is a member of that. We certainly welcome uh, Germany and Malawi to join us in these efforts, but recognizing that um, you know, there's been a, a bit of sentiment of initiative fatigue. So we're certainly trying to expand synergies and make the most out of existing uh, efforts because we certainly understand that coordination and collaboration on these effort, efforts can certainly be a full-time job, uh, but it's important. So. Yeah, we'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Katrin. Thank you for sharing that. I'd like to move on a, on the similar way over to you, Cornelia. And Cornelia, there are two questions coming in for you. One question is picking up on, on multilateral international cooperation. How is Germany uh, helping countries uh, to advance the actions that have been suggested in the communique? Uh, and then a different question also on the GFFA is, what were some of the key contentious issues that emerged during the GFFA that, uh, that uh, deserve attention in terms of unfinished business? Okay, thank you very much for your, for your questions. I, th I think um, I, I could just uh, add to the, what the US said that we are part of most of the mentioned international uh, movements and organizations. Um, uh, uh, the U.S. already mentioned. I, I, jumped, uh, I want to mention especially the, the, uh, the Committee on Food Security because uh, part of the uh, GFFA was uh, the discussion of, of uh, their 10 years anniversary of uh, the, of the, how is it called? Um, the guidance for land, forest, and, and fishery, and land management, the forest and fishery, and um, this was uh, de developed with uh, in close cooperation also with with Germany, and we are still uh, working very closely with the uh, uh, committee on food security. Um, th the last paper they. Um, finalized was on agroecology and other innovative approaches. And I feel that we feel that these uh, approaches also contribute to soil, soil health, especially. Um, then there's the question. Um, yeah, this is, this is on the multilateral side. I think the other question was, what are the most contentious points in the in the paper, um, I think most of the points were really uh, very con consensual. 
I think issues of land rights are the most difficult for countries because they have the, their own uh, also a lot of legal uh, issues around this point. So uh, I think there it is uh, always difficult to find uh, some global language on that. Uh, but the idea which is uh, behind the, the, um, the CFS guidance on, on land was shared by, by anyone, uh, by everyone. So uh, it is not really, yes, that word, contentious, uh, if you mean so. Thank you. Thank you, Cornelia. Thank you for sharing with us uh, that giving us a flavor of some of the discussions. Uh, my next question is for Teddy, and then a heads up to Martin that he has a question for Professor Lal. So, Professor Lal, in a few moments, we'll come to you with Martin's question. But before that, a uh, question for you, Teddy. Teddy, you talked at the, towards the end of your uh, remarks about uh, forests, the importance of forests. Can you comment uh, more specifically on how halting deforestation will contribute to healthy soils and to sustainable land use? And if you want to also say a few words on water management, that would also be welcome. Over to you, Teddy. Thank you so much, very much. Um, indeed, um, maybe let me start by saying that uh, in Malawi, our forest landscape restoration movement is driven by what we call three special purpose vehicles. And this is, uh, uh, the first one is to do with uh, the bond challenge where we have committed to restore over 4.5 million hectares of land by 2030. Uh, the second one is the ending deforestation by 2030. This was an outcome of the COP26. I think we have signed to that declaration. And again, within our policy, we've indicated that our forest policy, we've indicated that we'd want to achieve a 2% increase in forest cover by 2025. But again, when you look at the LDN under UNCCD, what we've declared in there is that we want to make sure that by 2030, there is no net loss on land anymore. So these are key milestones that we've set. And, and therefore, uh, all our efforts are geared towards making sure that we, we, achieve, we achieve this. And for us to, 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 to do this, basically we, we've, we're using a number of strategies. The first one is to make sure that we, we have on board all the communities, because when you talk of land degradation, it normally happens in the communities because that's where farming activities are happening. So if you have poor land use uh, systems there, if you don't have sustainable land use management plans there, you're likely going to have more, lands, more land being degraded. The second one is we want to make sure that we bring in the element of the private sector because we know that uh, if we are to improve land, then there has to be a reasonable amount of investment. And it's usually the... The, the private sector that can bring that investment. So we're trying to make sure that we bring the private sector. And recently we had a, a forum uh, with the CEOs of private sectors in the country, just trying to, to introduce to them in terms of how, how bad the degradation is in the country and the opportunities that exist for them to come in 
to invest either as a business model uh, through concessions or, or probably as a corporate social responsibility uh, through MOUs and other forms of agreement. And that was successful. And the next meeting that we want to hold, to hold now is to do with the traditional leaders who want to bring them on board so that again, we make them understand that land, we only have one land in this country and it will not have any other land from anywhere. So if we can't invest, if we can't protect, then it, it, it won't, it, it won't it, we want to increase productivity. So these are some of the initiatives that, that, that we are doing in order to make sure that um, land is, is, is rehabilitated and our forests are rehabilitated. You know, for us, forests are key because Malawi, we only enjoy one rainy season. Um, and basically, such being the case, uh, it means we produce crops probably during the season. Now, the extra food that we are able to produce are through irrigation. Now, if we deplete all the forests, and most of our forests are catchment areas, and if we deplete them, that means we'll have no water. And even in terms of the water that we use for domestic use, uh, basically it's coming out from this uh, forest. So for us, the relationship between forest, uh, soil and water, uh, it's, 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 it's just too strong. You can't separate them. And, and, and for us is the basis for our survival. Maybe I can stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Teddy. Very powerful, the, uh, you know, the relationship between forest, soil and land is so, inter and, and water is so intertwined. Thank you for that. Martin, you have a question for Professor Lal, so over to you. Yes, very good. Uh, thank you very much, Rajul. Yes, my question, Professor Lal, is, you know, and I'm very intrigued by what you said. I mean, that, that farmers, I mean, should be compensated, I mean, for providing the service of sequestering uh, carbon. Um, and, you know, given that soil carbon sequestration, you know, is a public good. I mean, that clearly is a sound economic case and rationale. I mean, that farmers should be compensated for that, because if farmers are not compensated for that, they actually will be subsidizing, you know, society at large. And of course, we know that most small, most farmers are smallholder farmers, poor farmers, etc. So it's not, it's not just right. I mean, that this would be the case. I mean, that poor smallholder farmers will be subsidizing society at large. The question then is, Professor Law, what is the right price and the right compensation? You know? I would also agree with you that cur current market prices for carbon, which are, you know, what is it, $10 or even less, I mean, do not reflect, I mean, the uh, economic value. At the World Bank, you know, uh, we use a shadow price of carbon in our economic uh, cost-benefit analysis of projects of $40 a tonne. Uh, the IMF has done calculations and they come up with a figure of $75 per ton as the opportunity cost of carbon. Now, I'm very intrigued because you said the, the number should be about $110 or $130 per ton. So I'm wondering how you arrive at that number. Thank you very much. Um, very good question. I'll try to answer in two, three minutes. And especially you mentioned smallholder and Malawi colleague Teddy Kamato also mentioned 0.5 acre and serious problem of degradation and drought. In fact, the latest estimate is there are 570 million small landholders throughout the world that cultivate less than two hectares, or they feed 3 billion people. 
and 60 to 70 percent of those 570 million are women. So this is something we can't ignore. Uh, World Bank, USDA, other development organization, GTZ, everybody. This is a very important part that we can't ignore. The question is how much they should be paid. You know, Chicago Climate Exchange started uh, a $1 ton of CO2. Sometimes there's a confusion, ton of CO2 or ton of carbon. You know, they are related, but not the same. Uh, CO2 is uh, 12 or 44, that. so that's where we compare them. And uh, they went up to $6 a ton and then collapsed to 20 cents because the US did not have a cap on how much fossil fuel could be burned. Uh, then came the geologic sequestration. And even yesterday, there was a statement that those people who take geologic carbon from chimney of a power plant or from ethanol plant and inject a mile or two mile deep should be paid $50 a ton of CO2. And yet farmers are being paid, as you know, less than $10. I am concerned why that's disparity. $50 a ton when you inject two mile deep and $5 a ton when you are putting 20 centimeter deep uh, and the $5 a ton has many ecosystem services. So what is a just and fair price? And that is not demand and supply because when your government does not put a cap on fossil fuel emission, emission you can burn as much as you want, there is no demand because you're burning whatever you like. Supply, there are many farmers willing to do it. So uh, the real price I published, and I'll send you, Martin, a copy, and I'll send it to our host, a copy in 2013. I took the price of crop residue. If you were to sell it, what would they get? I took the price of fertilizer because C and PK ratio in residue is 100 to 1, maybe 500 to 1 or 5. In humans, is 10 or 50. So farmers are knowingly or unknowingly putting nitrogen and phosphorus into the humus. And the other factors in the 2013 price, I came to $123 a ton of C. That comes to about $30 per ton of CO2. I think the prices have changed, but I think if we pay farmer $5, we are undervaluing a resource and it's going to suffer from the tragedy of common. So you give $5 to a half an acre farmer and they get a $2, what will they do with it? A cup of coffee? If we do not pay them properly, transparently, fairly, and justly, we should not be demanding from them, do this. And the society has to realize it. I was very glad when COP21 uh, in um, Paris uh, suggested $100 billion. And I immediately suggested to Dr. Mr. Stefan Lafol, who was the Minister of Agriculture at that time, I hope 60 of that goes to farmer or payment for them to do something good. We cannot expect them to do it, especially resource poor farmer, but even the bigger one, we could not. And when you undervalue such a precious resource, then the tragedy of the common, we are very far from it. So World Bank Martin must set the standard high. We'll pay the farmer what they really deserve, what the real, 
what the societal value of that is. When one ton of carbon goes into the soil, what does it do to climate, to water, to biodiversity, to food quality, foods, everything? That is societal value and not demand and supply. And I salute you for asking that question because not people want to ask it in public. That's the way it is. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Lau. Martin, the challenge is on you to go beyond asking the question I hear. So I think uh, we will look for further discourse on this, Martin. That's exactly what we're working on. But, you know, I mean, for that reason, I want to make sure we get the price right. <laughs> so we keep our ears tuned to see something coming out from the World Bank that will help to shed light on this. Colleagues, I, we are running close to the end of our Q&A period. I will have two more questions. Uh, next question is for you, Javu. And Javu, this, and then the last question will be for Professor Lal again. A uh, lot of questions coming in. Java, quick question for you is on soil data. So time is of the essence. If we have uh, low hanging fruits available that will help us to advance the soil data issue, where should we invest in the next three years or so? Over to you, uh, Java. Okay, great. Um, so if, if we are looking at next three years, I would launch a global campaign to scale the collection of soil sampling data across low input farming system around the world. And also collect farmers management practice information in recent years so that we can understand the trend of changes of those soil uh, carbon and nitrogen and, and many things with properties over time. And this information can really significantly improve the quality and reliability of digital soil mapping processes and uh, the prediction data. And, and I think I would also to spare some of the money, some of the research to improve how we communicate soil information to farmers. Uh, in the India example I mentioned before, uh, when uh, the soil information card, the information design of the information card was uh, improved and, and they saw the huge takeoff of, of how farmers uh, understand the information and what to do and, and how they uh, better understand the fertilizer recommendation, where it's coming from and what I should do better. So yeah, I think that we can really benefit from like human center design and better design approaches to uh, deliver this nuanced, uh, very complicated soil information and also uncertainties around the soil data uh, to farmers and who can really use and benefit the most. Thank you, Javu. Professor Lal, I'm combining several questions to ask you. You have demonstrated you can respond to multiple questions in a very succinct way, but I'm combining several questions that have come in. Uh, question number one is, what is your view of chemical fertilizers used in Africa where low input output, uh, uh, low input, low output cultures practiced, abandon or reduce? And then second question uh, is around organic agriculture. Is it possible to feed any nation with 100% organic cult uh, cultivation, giving consideration to sustainable land use? And then the third question is, what are some of the big research and innovations opportunities open to us um, that we should be considering to accelerate our efforts to achieve healthy soils? Where do we, where is the new science for uh, research and innovation opportunities? Over to you, Professor Lau. Thank you. Chemical fertilizer really very um, kind of a hard topic. We are using about 200 million tons of fertilizer right now globally. Uh, India, China are on the top of the list of fertilizer consumption. I was surprised Punjab is using 240 kilograms per hectare of fertilizer. United States on the average is less than 100 kilograms per hectare. 
So uh, China, some places 500 kilograms per hectare. Uh, use efficiency fertilizer uh, can be 20%, 30%, 50% would be very, very good. Uh, so rather than focus on rate of fertilizer, the focus should be on efficiency of fertilizer. Can we improve the efficiency from 20% to 70, 80%? And if so, how? Soil health becomes very important. The answer whether we can feed the world without fertilizer, 9 billion people almost now, 7.9 billion now, and coming to uh, uh, 10 billion by 2050, the answer is no, we cannot feed. Uh, therefore, feeding the world is a priority number one. 820 million people hungry, and uh, COVID-19 has added another 130 million, 2 billion people suffering from malnutrition. So to say thou shall never use fertilizer, uh, I will not uh, accept that statement. Yes, minimize the use, increase the use efficiency, use it judiciously and prudently. Please remember the difference between poison and medicine is the dose and the time it is taken. And that's very important. When you use indiscriminately, even the medicine becomes poison. Aspirin is a very good example. So using, that's where digital agriculture, precision agriculture, soil test value, soil health card are very important. Integrated soil fertility management, combination of biological fertilizer, combination of recycling, and whatever is needed more, because we cannot get the yield required, we should not hold back chemical use it judiciously, prudently, sparingly, properly, scientifically. Can the organic agriculture feed 100% people? If our population was 2 billion, 3 billion, I think organic agriculture would be ideal. And I think organic agriculture has a niche uh, where certain things can be grown with organic agriculture. But the way our population trend is now, some people have, will have to go hungry. And uh, therefore organic, is, in terms of soil health, in terms of soil qualities, organic increasing is absolutely essential. There is no question. But to go and say that we will not put any chemical at all, I'm worried whether we can feed 10 billion people. So that is the part, let's use organic wherever it's feasible and as judicial as possible. Some farmer can get extra price for it. Yes, let's support it, but let's not make it a divine rule that this is the only option. We have such a humongous problem at the moment of food insecurity, of water quality, of climate change. Putting these very strict do's and don'ts uh, may not be, hopefully, with education of the women, especially in developing country, the population train may not go to 11 billion. There are data that if the women have a power, they are empowered, they have education, they have their own destiny in their hand, maybe we'll stabilize at 8 billion. Well, there are, that's a bright side, but that has to happen. The last part, uh, what are the innovation? Please remember soil is a living thing and a living soil dumping chemicals inappropriately, ad hocly, plowing inappropriately, flooding, you are dealing with a living entity. And just like any other living entity, I think soil must also have rights. Rights to be protected, rights to be restored, rights to thrive, rights 
to manage properly. Simply because you own it doesn't mean you can do anything with it as you wish. We have in this country uh, a very good example of a Clean Air Act. We have an example of Clean Water Act. There is no Healthy Soil Act. Is it ever possible to have clean air and clean water without healthy soil? It's rather being naive. And uh, this is a time where Germany and US and France and other countries set up a, a model soil health act. That doesn't mean you are going to punish those who do not do it properly. That means you're going to reward those who restore and protect soil health. So I think the, I'm surprised that at the kindergarten level, nursery level, we do not have alphabet books which are based on agriculture and soil health and other things. I don't know why not. Thanks for you to write that book. Look forward to it. Thank you. Incredible. Thank you. Panelists, I would love for us to continue this uh, conversation, but we are running out of time. To the audience, I say thank you for sharing with us your questions, and I'm so sorry we could not take all of them, but it was a very lively engagement and a very lively uh, conversation. I would like to give each panelist a chance for 20-second final, final tweetable message. What do you want the audience to take away in these 20 seconds? And then I will give Astrid the closing remarks. I will go in reverse order, and that will be then Martin, followed by Katrine, Teddy, Javu, Ratan, and Cornelia. Please, Martin, kick us off. Well, for me, I mean, I think the takeaway is a confirmation that providing the right incentives to the 570 million farmers to invest in healthy soil, I mean, will be a very powerful force, I mean, to transform the food system in support of healthy people, planet, and economy. Thank you. Katrin? Thank you, yes, and thanks to all the panelists. I learned so much today. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit and give a quote by Secretary Tom Vilsack. Uh, this was for a domestic audience, so I'll, I'll shift it just a little bit. Um, the work to combat climate change cannot be done alone. Uh, to be truly successful, we must creatively examine our partnerships with state, local, tribal, private, and non-sector partners, and I would add here international partners, to tap into their expertise, leverage shared resources, and seek out new ways to work together to tackle these problems across a landscape that we all share. Thanks. Thank you. Teddy? Uh, thank you so very much. I think for me, um, my interpretation of all what we've discussed is, is that um, all these technologies that we are talking about, whether it's digital, all these interventions that we, we, we're trying to research on, what we should know is by the end of the day, the most important person is the farmer who is going to utilize those. And I think we should do, make an effort to make sure that we listen to what the farmer is saying, because in some cases, they do come with brilliant ideas. So that's, that would be my, my way. Thank you. Thank you, Jawa. Yes, uh, so we already have very strong soil scientific knowledge and how to manage soils better and it will get even stronger with more data uh, becoming available on also utilizing digital tools. So yeah, I think this is time to act. Uh, and yeah, I also had a sensation today that Professor Lal is our generation, so Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, we, we just uh, don't look up and I think we should uh, continue his journey and story um, to really uh, bring the audience and make this uh, global action happen. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Professor Lal or the new Leonardo DiCaprio. Thank you. Our policy should be pro-nature, pro-agriculture, pro-farmer and pro-soil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Cornelia, you have the final word. 
Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, we all have to take the torch forward and move on to really transformation uh, of uh, food systems. And uh, I just want to mention that Germany is going to pick some of the topics up in the in the, our G7 presidency, looking at uh, sustainable supply chains and carbon farming. Thank you very much. Thank you, Cornelia. Colleagues, this was a remarkable, remarkable session. And I, I echo Katrin, I learned so much. I will not dare to summarize anything. I will pass that uh, back over to uh, Astrid. I know I probably you will not summarize, but share some reflections. But Astrid, over to you. And this is, um, uh, let me introduce you formally. Uh, we are turning to Astrid Jacobs de Padua, the Minister Counselor and Head of Department for Food and Agriculture at the Embassy of the Federal Republic of Germany in Washington, D.C., and really the lead organizer for this remarkable event. Astrid, over to you. Thank you very much. It's really difficult to uh, to find better words than these we just have heard. And I think we really identified our champion, which is Professor uh, Ratandal. So um, I would first of all like to thank all speakers for this great uh, exchange and event. I would like to thank uh, IFPRI to facilitate this because with your support and um, helping us with bringing people together and these uh, wonderful platform you have, uh, it, would, it, would be not, it wouldn't be possible. I would like to, you, uh, Rajul, that you gave us really a wonderful uh, moderation through the topic and teasing everybody with the questions. Um, for me, Connie already mentioned, G7 offers a lot of more topics. Um, therefore, here at the embassy, we decided to uh, start a platform. You can see our new uh, logo up there, Food and Agriculture, uh, Transatlantic Dialogue. So you can expect more of us. Um, we, I, I heard, you know, the challenges are huge. We have on the one side, the individuals, which we need to give access to healthy food. It's not just about quantity, but also about qualities. So how can, are we able to feed the world, whether it's 7 billion or 9 billion, who knows? We learned that there is technology and uh, innovation out there. There are old um, techniques and practices which we shouldn't discard, but take into account. Katrin, you mentioned the one yearbook from 1938. So that's impressive. But we have also the opportunity to take, um, to take new technologies and to advance and to, to grow on this. We learned from governments that uh, they're on top of it. They're working on it. There are no silver bullets. And I... Uh, Teddy, I really heard you farmers. We need to learn to listen to farmers. And there will be another part of this discussion where we will bring in farmers. And I think there's no better way to, to bring everything together and in, in saying soils are the essence of life. I think 
that is the one which sticks with me as my new motto for the upcoming events, work. It, everything will be around this aspect. Thank you very much. Thank you, Astrid. Uh, before we adjourn, I would like to invite all of you to please join IFPRI on February 23 at 9.30 a.m. EST for the next policy seminar, which is on advancing food systems transformation, a dialogue between German Development Cooperation and CGIR, co-organized by the CGIR, IFPRI, and the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development. A big thank you to all the speakers today for your inspirational and informative remarks. A big thank you to all the participants for taking the time to join us. And a big thank you to all of those who facilitated this uh, seminar today from the IFPRI and uh, Embassy teams. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a lovely day. <laughs>